Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscal Mall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my home office, broadcasting to you from the northeast corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Mike, the sound guy, is good. He is, uh, I think I mentioned a while back, he started working from home because he moved back to be with his, uh, to take care of his parents. I think his dad, if I remember, had a stroke back in like 2017-ish. So as part of all this coronavirus-related shutdowns and stuff, uh, his job, oddly enough, was like more secure than others because he was already accustomed to doing remote work. And the uh, the ad studio where he's at has gotten a, a bump of new clients because, of course, everyone is doing these new depressing-ass TV commercials talking about we're all going to get through this, which is true. I, don't get me wrong. We will get through it together, et cetera, et cetera. But seeing every single fucking commercial uh, on the same thing is just ridiculous. And so many companies have cut back on their ads because they're trying to save money. You start seeing the same commercials over and over. So like I got rid of TV back during the bar exam, had not had cable in ages. Of course, my significant other loves cable. Like she likes watching, you know, trash TV and Family Guy and, you know, anything on Home and Garden or Discovery or whatever the fuck else. If it involves flipping houses or cooking food or whatever, we watch it. Well, those commercials are like all the same. I see the same commercial like seven or eight times while I'm sitting on the couch working on like an outline for the podcast or whatever else. Um, so he is actually, he's doing better, I think, than most folks are. He's gotten a raise. He's working from home. He's got a stable job. Um, so he wanted me to pass along that he is fine, but it's just, it's weird. We're in weird times. Like, you know, we're recording this on Easter. This has been the weirdest Easter I can remember. Um, no Easter egg hunt, obviously for any young kids. Church services are mostly canceled because of the pandemic. Um, it's just strange. We're just in very strange times. And of course, the the government continues to be utterly fucking shambolic. We have this new group here in North Carolina called Reopen NC that started a Facebook group like this past week talking about they want to end the restrictions and get everyone back, you know, now. And it's it's a the leader of it is an anti-vaxxer, which I'm just like, you're already fucking nuts. A bunch of don't tread on me types are in it. They're trying to convince business owners to join because, of course, if you built a business, you're desperate to reopen. But I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys, did none of you take, you know, biology when you were in high school? You know, this is really obvious stuff. Learn how geometric spread works. But anyhow. So that that's that's you know that's where we are. That's it for the podcast notes and the politics. I, I got that out of the way a bit earlier than expected. Uh, sorry for the stream of consciousness talk. Um, we do have fireside lawyers coming back tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, the spouse of one of our lawyers who we thought had coronavirus, in fact, only had strep throat. Thank God she is healthy. Uh, hopefully the kids and him are fine too. So we will have the fireside lawyers tomorrow. Our guest. Uh, runs the, I'm already blanking on the name of it, but basically there's a, a roadside zoo in Alamance County that takes care of tigers and lions that get abandoned from other spots. So if you watch the Tiger King, I have not seen it yet. Uh, I feel like I'm missing out, but it is the North Carolina person that is the North Carolina Tiger King, but hopefully not as crazy as I'm gathering from uh, the Twitter comments. Um, so make sure to tune in. We are going to start putting that on YouTube, doing YouTube live streams. So you'll be able to comment in the chats. Uh, up until this point, what we've done 
is streamed it to each of our own Facebook pages, which allows people to comment, but you can't see the other comments. So there's no like group interaction. Uh, but we're going to start putting that on YouTube going forward, I think. So just as a heads up. Uh, but that's it for the podcast notes. This is the first Monday. We are back. Um, this will be the second episode in the span of a week that you get. Technically the third, but last episode was split into two, so I'm only counting it as one. Uh, I am trying hard to get back into a rhythm with these podcasts. Uh, I am still working from home. That will be continuing until May 30th at the earliest. It is a bit of a nightmare, frankly, because it's just not structured how I like it. You know, I, I've been in my office for eight years now and you get into kind of a groove. You know, you somewhat call it a rut because God knows I've got stacks of papers that I haven't touched in ages that need to be filed. But, you know, I don't file them because one, I hate filing. Like it's one of the things I hate for my job. But like my desk, my desk at my office is grown to be exactly how I want it. You know, I've got the center tray that's got my pens and my sticky notes and my notepads. And then on the left-hand side, I got my letterhead, my envelopes, and my file folders. On my right-hand side, you know, I've got my snacks. I've got, you know, paper towels. I've got drinks, that sort of thing. Um, I don't have any of that here at the house. I have a desk in my office, which is very nice. I got it from the thrift store for like 30 bucks. Uh, put a glass top on it so it looks very elegant. It actually apparently came from a lawyer because there's a sticker on the side that says CLE, and I can't think of what that would stand for other than continuing legal education. Uh, but it's tiny. It's like half the size of my office desk because I didn't want to have like a super enormous desk in my home office. But the expectation was that the only thing I'd be doing here would be recording podcasts, not doing actual substantive work. Uh, so it is a bit of an adjustment. I don't know how I got off on that particular tangent, um, but just know that this is a weird time and we're getting through it. And if you are listening to this through, as opposed to me recording it in chunks and you're, you're saying, oh, I know how you got off on that tangent. I don't. I don't remember how I ended up on this particular tangent. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, so let's go ahead and get into the criminal justice fuckery for this particular week. It is still ongoing. Uh, but before we do that, of course, make sure to follow us on Twitter if you don't already. The Twitter account is at Fiskemall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. -L. The website, if you want to leave us a written comment, is Fiskemall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And the Patreon page is Patreon.com slash Fisk. It's Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Um, one thing you're going to notice, and I suspect it will continue for some time, these episodes are going to be shorter for the foreseeable future because there's actually not that much uh, news on criminal justice fuckery. I know it's still happening. It always happens. Uh, but the actual news stories on it have been more sparse than normal. So today's outline is only 10 pages long. Um, so this will be a brief uh, podcast and feel free to continue sending me stuff. And of course, I've still got the backlog that I'm going to keep working through. But the good news to everyone staying at home is that, of course, police are shooting less unarmed minorities and that sort of thing. So most of this continues to be related to the coronavirus and government fuck-ups relating to the coronavirus. Uh, so I just want to give you a heads up on the front end. If you find that stuff boring, you could probably safely skip this podcast. But this time in the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery, we will start in California, in San Diego. And it's one of those stories where the headline kind of succinctly covers it all. It says, quote, detainees at Ote Mesa Detention Center were offered masks, but only if they signed contracts. 
Uh, from that story, it says, quote, detainees at Otay Mesa Detention Center had been asking for more protection from the COVID-19 pandemic all week when the shipment of surgical masks arrived at the facility on Friday. The women of APOD would finally be able to ditch their own constructions made from rubber bands, panty liners, and cut-up shirts for proper masks. But by that afternoon, the mood quickly changed from excitement to anger, according to Brisida Salazar, a 23-year-old in the unit which houses immigration detainees. Detainees had complained of not having protective gear like masks and gloves and not having adequate soap. The new surgical masks arrived Friday, but they initially came with conditions. Salazar's account of what happened when the masks arrived is corroborated by a signed declaration from San Diego attorney Anna Heisel, whose client called her immediately after it happened, as well as messages from other attorneys who heard similar stories from their clients. Before the masks were to be distributed, the unit manager handed the women contracts written in English, telling them they would have to sign in order to get masks. Most of the women in the unit do not speak English, Salazar said, and having grown up in the United States, she is one of the few who do. The document, as read over the phone to the Union Tribune, included a section saying that the detainees agree to hold harmless core civic and its agents and employees, quote, from any and all claims that, may that I may have related directly to my wearing the face mask. When the unit manager began to verbally translate the document into Spanish, one of the bilingual detainees noticed that she skipped the hold harmless section in her translation. She pointed that out to the other detainees, and they became angry. The unit manager reiterated that they would not be given masks without signing, Salazar said, and then when the women demanded to be given the masks, they were threatened with pepper spray, according to multiple accounts. The three women, including the one who had recognized the translation error, and I'm putting error in air quotes, were taken away. Uh, one thing to note, Core Civic is trash. This is a private operator of jails. The notion that you have a profit motive to keep people detained is gross. I know the government does it. I get it. The government makes money off of detainees. But to have private companies do it is absurd. All private prisons should be abolished. Private companies running prisons should be abolished. And again, it is stupid that you are allowing your detainees to get sick because that means your jailers, your personnel, your staff are going to get sick too. You people are dumb as shit. Uh, in Colorado, in Brighton, we have the first rule of Fisk again, and that's actually going to be the title of this episode, that the first rule remains undefeated, because you're going to notice there's a lot of first rule stories this week, um, but police are once again overreaching to enforce quarantines. Now, we talked in the Law 140 of the prior episode that government quarantine power is super broad, but even then, police somehow managed to fuck it up. Uh, so from that story, it says, quote, Matt Mooney feels Brighton police owe him a huge apology. The 33-year-old says he was handcuffed at Donaldson Park in front of his six-year-old daughter Sunday afternoon after police told him he violated the state's social distancing guidelines. Mooney told the Fox 31 problem solvers he refused to provide his identification to three police officers because he was confident he wasn't doing anything unlawful by playing t-ball with his wife and daughter at the park. My daughter's like, Daddy, I don't want to get arrested. At this point, I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to arrest me. This is insane. I'm telling her, don't worry. Daddy's not going to get arrested. I've done nothing wrong. Don't worry about it, Mooney said. And then they arrest me. Former Brighton City Councilman Kirby Wallen recorded much of the incident on his cell phone, where you can hear his voice narrate the scene. Subquote, he's being taken by the Brighton police for playing softball with his daughter in an empty park, Wallen said. The sign at Donaldson Park said, closed. 
but in smaller print reads in groups of no more than four persons parks remain open for walking hiking biking running and similar activities Mooney was just there with his wife and daughter. He said it was the officers who were violating social distancing guidelines. So, quote, during the contact, none of the officers had masks on, none of them had gloves on, and they're in my face handcuffing me, touching me, he said. Brighton police posted a vague statement on their Facebook page Sunday night that made no mention of Matt Moody or his arrest. Instead, it simply stated, so, quote, the Brighton Police Department is conducting an investigation into a situation that occurred late this afternoon at Donaldson Park. This is an active investigation, and so we are unable to provide additional information until the investigation is complete. So we will give you a link to that, including the video. Again, it, I'm impressed at the ability of police to fuck up really basic things, including the fact that softball is allowed as long as you don't have more than 10 people, which in this case, it was just a guy, his wife, and his daughter. Someone, they, that should have clicked at some point. Uh, down in Florida, this is not a criminal justice-related story. I am including, well, it is criminal justice-related, but it's not the police who have screwed up. Uh, I'm including it because it is so ridiculous. It is so quintessentially Florida. Uh, that you will probably get a kick out of it. And from that story, it says, quote, a Florida woman violated the state's coronavirus-related travel restrictions to distribute Easter eggs filled with porn in mailboxes throughout an entire county, authorities say. It all started on Palm Sunday when numerous residents of Flagler County reported receiving the eggs filled with pornographic images in a twisted whodunit mystery. Police finally discovered the alleged culprit, April Sestoni, earlier this week after she made the mistake of concentrating several deliveries in a single area. The 42-year-old woman, who Sheriff Rick Staley called a deranged offender, told police she was simply, subquote, educating people, according to the Flagler County Sheriff's Office. There was a bag full of pornographic material inside the vehicle, and she told deputies that she had distributed over 400 pamphlets in the past few days, police said. Sestoni is now being held on $7,000 bond on charges of distributing obscene material. That's probably going to get dismissed. Uh, driving with a suspended license and violating the executive order that barred all non-essential travel, police said. Uh, so down in Florida, we have people violating the travel ban, potentially spreading coronavirus, so they can give you porn-filled eggs in your mailboxes, which I would note is a federal offense. Only the Postal Service is allowed to put things in a mailbox. Uh, over in Illinois, <laughs> this is funny. So we have two stories, and they're technically different towns. It's Alton and Wood River, but the two towns are basically side by side. They're both suburbs of Chicago, I think. Um, and it's just this particular story is funny to me. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A mayor in Illinois pleaded with residents last week to follow the state's stay-at-home order. After officers reported that people were continuing to defy the rules, the mayor said he had directed the city's police department to use its discretion in issuing citations and arrests. So, quote, these are very serious times, and I'm begging you to please stay at home, Brant Walker, mayor of Alton, Illinois, said in a briefing on Friday. Less than 48 hours later, police broke up a gathering at Hiram's Tavern in downtown Alton. Among those in attendance, Walker's wife. Walker announced in a statement on Monday that police had investigated and stopped a social gathering in violation of Illinois' statewide order around 1 a.m. on Sunday. He said police also informed him that his wife was there. So, quote, I instructed the police chief to treat her as he would any citizen violating the stay-at-home order and to ensure that she received no special treatment. Walker's statement read, that may very well be true. 
and kudos to the mayor for doing that. Uh, but I guarantee the police gave her a kid gloves treatment because that's just how they are. Uh, officers found no unauthorized activity until Sunday when, subquote, several individuals were located inside Hiram's Tavern in an area outside public view, clearly disregarding the executive order and public pleas for compliance according to the release. On police confirmed that officers issued a criminal complaint for reckless conduct, a Class A misdemeanor charge punishable by up to 364 days in jail, and slash or a fine of $2,500 to everyone who had gathered at the bar. So that is an Alton, mayor's wife, out violating the uh, order. And then you have, on the other extreme, in Wood River, a few minutes away, the police going apeshit because black folks are wearing masks to protect themselves. From that story, it says, quote, As the area attempts to navigate challenges and changes brought about by the coronavirus, established practices, rules, and procedures are requiring another look. A recent YouTube video showed two young African-American men with surgical masks being followed by a Wood River police officer as they left a Walmart in Wood River. Viewers were at odds whether the men were racially profiled or causing a disturbance, as well as if anyone should be asked to remove a surgical mask in light of COVID-19 concerns. Jermon Best of Belleville made the video and said he shared it because he wanted to show the world racial profiling is happening and the situation could have been much worse. Best and another man in the video, D'Angelo Jackson of Wood River, described the situation as, subquote, terrifying, and said they felt like they were, subquote, prey, being stalked by the officer who approached them and said a Wood River city ordinance prohibits people from wearing masks in businesses. Wood River Police Chief Brad Wells said he had been reluctant to make a public statement about the incident because the video didn't look good on the surface. No shit. Uh, he said the posted video doesn't show the entire interaction between the officer and the men involved, adding the incident took place before there were a lot of people wearing surgical masks in public. I'm going to make a couple notes here. One, it doesn't show the whole interaction. That is always their go-to statement, and it doesn't fucking matter. You don't have to show the whole interaction to show the parts of the interaction that matter. The fact is, a lot of times, you have the police doing boneheaded things, and they try and explain it away by saying it doesn't show everything, when even if you did show everything, it wouldn't actually make a difference. So that's part one. Part two, whether it's bef you know before a lot of people were wearing surgical masks or not, doesn't matter if it's not against the fucking law. If you're allowed to wear a surgical mask, and you know from the news that there's this pandemic out there, even if a lot of people aren't complying with things like wearing masks in public, a police officer has no fucking business to try and tell you to take it off. So the story continues, quote, Wells said the officer, subquote, was mistaken when it came to the store's policy prohibiting masks, and it was, subquote, the one error made in the incident. Now, go back to the prior sentence in that story where it said the officer told them it was, in fact, a city ordinance. So the officer says city ordinance, police chief says store policy, when, in fact, there is no city ordinance, and there was no store policy. Sounds like at least two errors to me. I just don't know who's making the error here. Wells continued and said that Best and Jackson immediately started saying they were being harassed when the officer approached them. My answer to that is, so the fuck what? They probably were, based on what we now know, that this officer was mistaken and someone at the department is lying for him. Uh, so there ended up being a follow-up statement that was released to the press when this issue was not going away. The key line from that one says, quote, a city ordinance does not exist, which would prohibit the two from wearing a mask. I'm sure that comes as a shock to all of you. Uh, continuing on, over in Kansas, we have the uh, Kansas Supreme Court has ruled Saturday 
that a Republican-dominated legislative panel, which is called the Legislative Coordinating Council, or the LCC, exceeded its authority when it tried to overturn the Democratic governor's executive order banning religious and funeral services of more than 10 people during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm going to do a sidebar here. This is not a surprise. Uh, among other things, I know we're dealing with the mechanics of how the Kansas government operates, uh, but in terms of whether or not religious services can be held to other laws, as long as it is a neutral law of general applicability, it applies to religion just as much as it applies to everything else. Uh, story continues, quote, the decision letting Governor Laura Kelly's order stand came after the justices heard oral arguments one day before Easter, which is typically the busiest day on the Christian calendar in terms of church attendance. The Saturday hearing was the court's first conducted completely via video conferencing. The court ruled that leg legislate I'm tongue-tied guys, sorry. The court ruled that legislative action designed to give the legislative leadership panel the ability to overrule Kelly's executive orders was flawed and didn't legally accomplish that. Uh, I'll include a link to the order, but basically the LCC attorney conceded in oral arguments that the legislature's resolution that they passed trying to give this committee the power uh, didn't authorize the committee to revoke the executive order in the first place, even if it actually had done what the legislature intended it to do. Uh, over in New York, we have the first rule of Fisk again. First rule, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, you notice that police terror is still a priority during a pandemic. From that story, it says, quote, Police officers in a Harlem subway station on Friday night were seen forcibly dragging a child away from a woman claiming to be his mother, apparently for the offense of selling snacks on the train. Witness Shaquan Jenkins tells Gothamist he was on his way home to Jersey City when he saw police remove the unidentified boy from the train at the 145th Street station. Jenkins said he had seen the boy moving through the subway car selling candy shortly before police officers grabbed him. He says a woman who identified herself as the boy's mother repeatedly told police, that's my son. One video shared by Jenkins on Twitter showed the distraught boy struggling with police officers as subway riders angrily object. Subquote, we're going to let your son go when you speak to me. One officer who is not wearing a protective mask tells the woman who identified himself as the boy's mother. I'm going to note, they can't do that. That would violate the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Uh, they can't compel you to talk in order to do things. Uh, I'm speaking to you now, the woman replies. You're not speaking to me, the officer says to the woman. Jenkins said the bystanders were trying to help by gathering the candy the boy had dropped on the subway platform, but that police threw it in the garbage. Subquote, they looked like kidnappers, like they were trying to kidnap the little boy, Jenkins said. I felt outraged. It's a little boy. Can't they talk to him on his level and say, it's not safe, go home? Why do they need three officers to take him to the precinct? A second video shows more officers joining the others to bring the boy up the subway stairs. Some of the officers can be seen wearing protective surgical masks. Others are not. Subsequent statement from the NYPD confirmed that the child was eight years old. Neither he nor his mother were charged with anything. So that was the first rule in New York. In North Carolina, things are fucking nuts here, y'all. I mean, stuff is just going crazy here. So we've got 57 infections in a Chatham County nursing home, which is near where I live. It's one of the adjacent counties. Uh, 60 infections and two dead in an Orange County nursing home. 47 infections in a Wake County rehab facility. So th there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's bad here. It's getting worse. Uh, but the story I want to start off with is Butner, which we talked about in the last episode. I mentioned that I may or may not have been slightly involved with portions of it. Turns out it's even worse than I thought. Uh, from one of the stories, we've got two different stories on the same prison. 
Uh, first story says, quote, the coronavirus outbreak and the federal correctional complex at Butner took another turn on Thursday when the Federal Bureau of Prisons reported that the number of staffers who have tested positive jumped from one to 17. That number may be even higher. An internal email obtained by the News and Observer shows the warden reporting that 21 staffers have tested positive. Two have recovered and returned to work. Now, go back to the last episode where, remember, they said only one person had tested positive. It typically takes at least a week, usually two, for someone to recover. So to have two recovered and returned to work means that they knew there was at least two infected at the time they were claiming only one had tested positive. Uh, So the email was provided to the News and Observer by an employee who asked not to be identified for fear it could affect the employee's employment. The warden's email said 61 inmates have tested positive with all but one in the medium security FCI 1. So the way Butner is set up, you have Federal Correction Institution 1, Federal Correctional Institution 2. Those are kind of the medium security ones. Uh, You have a low security campus, and then you have a medical campus for when you get sick. Uh, Sorry, I guess that's already actually in the the story here. Uh, So 61 inmates are tested positive. They're all in FCI 1. The other is in the medical center. That would put the total number of cases, both inmates and staff, at 82, even though the Bureau only reported 76 cases on its website. So remember, all of this is as of Thursday, and then you have the Friday website thing. Well, by Sunday night... Uh, people started dying. So from the separate story, it says, quote, an 81-year-old prisoner at the Federal Correctional Complex in Butner died from COVID-19 complications on Saturday, according to federal officials. Charles Richard Roots, who had long-term pre-existing medical conditions, went into respiratory failure on March 26th and was taken to the hospital where he tested positive for COVID-19, according to a press release statement sent by the U.S. Department of Justice Federal Bureau of Prisons. The next day, he was put on a ventilator and then died. So this guy was on a ventilator for 15 days before dying to give you an idea of how much the health resources are going to be taxed and how problematic it's going to be for Butner if they don't get more of these people out of there. So remember, a lot of this information I got, I got from a local hospital uh, because that's where one of these guys ended up being on the respirator for that whole time. And at one point, 71% of the people in the ICU at this particular hospital were inmates from the prison. So the Bureau of Prisons has been fucking up. They've been covering it up. They've been lying to the public and they do it because they can, because we just assume that, you know, what happens in a prison is whoopty fucking do because you got convicted of a crime and it's an abomination. Uh, So in traitor tot news, not criminal justice fuckery, but public corruption fuckery, Uh, This is still going on. So remember, the uh, $2.5 million settlement got overturned because the Trader Tots, the North Carolina Division Sons of Confederate Veterans, did not have standing to file suit in the first place. This was all part of a fraud on the court orchestrated by the general counsel to the UNC system, Tom Shanahan, their outside counsel, Ripley Rand of Womble Bond Dickinson, and the attorney for the Confederates, uh, C. Boyd Sturgis III. Well, when that was undone... The question became, what do we do about the money that was already spent? And Superior Court Judge Alan Bedore has ruled in the middle of the pandemic when no one's around 
that actually all of that is fine and they can go ahead and keep the money. So from the Daily Tar Heel, who has done amazing work covering this story, uh, it says, quote, the UNC system won't be getting fully repaid on a two and a half million dollar trust. It provided a controversial Confederate group last year in a backdoor deal that has since crumbled under public scrutiny and a judge's reexamination. Instead, over $80,000 of the short-lived Monument Trust will end up being paid to non-UNC attorneys who played a role in the creation of the lawsuit settlement that temporarily gave Silent Sam to the North Carolina Division Sons of Confederate Veterans on November 27th. Orange County Superior Court Judge Alan Bedore approved those final payments in a new court order on Wednesday, which states that the Monument Trust must be dissolved within 10 days once all of its obligations have been fulfilled and any remaining funds are returned to the UNC system. As a result, $52,500 of the UNC-funded trust will pay Boyd Sturgis, who represented the Confederate group while it sued the UNC system over illegitimate claims to Silent Sam. Another $29,860.50 will pay outside attorneys who provided services for the trust after its creation, which includes a payment of over $17,000 to Matthew McGonigal, the trustee of the Monument Trust, and two smaller payments to outside legal firms whose services McGonigal enlisted for the trust. And I will note, as part of those documents, those smaller payments to outside legal firms were hired because McGonagall was trying to make sure he didn't end up criminally prosecuted because you notice there were criminal defense firms who got paid. So basically, this is all ridiculous. Judge Bedore has fucked up here, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know why. I assume it's just a matter of keeping the witnesses paid so they don't snitch because I imagine Boyd Sturgis has a lot of information that would make life difficult for Shanahan and Rand and Bedore himself. Uh, but we'll see. You know, I don't know if it'll be appealed. My suspicion is probably not, uh, even though it should be to give this thing a full examination by someone who is not compromised. But here we are uh, over in Oregon, in West Lynn. This is this is just this is a crazy development to a crazy story. So if you go back to episode 98, uh, we talked about former police chief Terry Timus. He was the guy who had someone arrested. Uh, because the person had threatened to sue his employer for race discrimination, and the employer happened to be fishing buddies with Timus. Well, now the new police chief has been placed on leave, too, because he, too, has connections to this guy. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, West Lynn Police Chief Terry Kruger, so not Terry Timus, Terry Kruger, uh, was placed on administrative leave Wednesday after the city council voted to hire an outside firm to investigate how the city handled Portland resident Michael Fesser's wrongful arrest and discrimination allegations against the police. Kruger became embroiled in the scandal shortly after the Oregonian revealed in February that the city had paid $600,000 to Fesser to settle his lawsuit. Westland police arrested Fesser in February 2017 at the behest of the city's then-chief, Terry Timus. Timus ordered the theft investigation as a favor to a fishing buddy, Eric Benson, a Westland resident and longtime owner of A&B Towing Company based in southeast Portland. Benson was Fesser's boss at A&B Towing and targeted Fesser because he had complained about racist comments and harassment at work. Documents obtained from a public records request showed that Kruger also had a personal relationship with Fesser's ex-boss, Benson. Transcripts released last week of West Lynn City Council executive sessions also revealed that Kruger had vigorously defended his department's arrest of Fesser in two closed-door sessions with the West Lynn Mayor and Council. Interim City Manager John Williams announced in a prepared statement that Kruger would remain on paid administrative leave during the course of the investigation, subquote, in order to further ensure a complete, fair, and impartial investigation. Captain Peter Mahuna has been named acting police chief. So you had a corrupt former chief 
replaced by a corrupt new chief. And the corrupt new chief was trying to cover for the corrupt old chief in the process. That's basically what is going on. Uh, so that is in Oregon. Over in Pennsylvania, we got two stories out of Philly. The first one is the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, a man got ripped off of a bus because he was not wearing a face mask, even though the policy to require face masks, uh, face mask, gosh, I'm sorry, y'all, I'm so tongue-tied here, um, they had started a new policy, had just gone into effect that day, had not adequately told anything about it to rioters, and rather than give the man a mask, they instead summoned a shitload of police to force him off, and it was all captured on video. So from that story, it says, quote, at least seven Philadelphia police officers dragged a man off of a city bus on Friday, purportedly for not wearing a mask, in an incident that was captured on video and soon went viral. The film was shared by the Philly Transit Riders Union, a community organization that advocates for the city's public transit users and wants the incident investigated. While viewers aren't able to see the events that led up to the officer's arrival, the footage shows the man who is not wearing a face mask being dragged off the bus by several uniformed officers with police yanking at his limbs as he seems to resist being removed. He then tells them he wants their badge numbers. According to the group, the man was pulled off the bus because he wasn't wearing a face mask. The Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, SEPTA, confirmed to BuzzFeed News that a man was removed from one of their buses. A spokesperson said the reasons why the man was removed are still under investigation. The spokesperson added that the man, whom they did not identify was neither arrested nor cited for the incident, as if that fixes anything. You have a guy on video being ripped off of a bus by police. Well, the fact that he doesn't get charged doesn't you know, justify the initial invasion of his liberty interests in the first place. Uh, in the same thread, the Philly Transit Riders Union shared video of what appeared to be a separate incident showing a SEPTA employee who is not wearing a face mask himself, demanding that all riders without masks get off the bus. The man is heard telling a rider, you have to get off the bus, man, or I'm going to have the cops take you off one or other. One of the riders appears to have fashioned a mask out of clothing, which the CDC has said works as an effective face cover, but he too was told to exit the bus. So we don't know why this man got pulled off in this first video. We can be pretty sure it was because he didn't have a mask because within 24 hours, the policy requiring face masks was undone by SEPTA. They said they are not going to enforce it now. But again, the money and the time that it takes to summon seven police officers is more expensive than the cost of just giving this guy a fucking mask. This is stupid. This is another example of government employees being utterly fucking idiotic, dealing with really basic common sense. Uh, also in Philadelphia, we have a case of a guy who is wrongfully imprisoned. I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny. It's actually kind of morbid. Uh, but dude is wrongfully imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. The DA's office is trying to have him released, but they're dicking around so much that he's probably going to die of COVID-19 in prison first before he actually gets out. From that story in Reason Magazine, it says, quote, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office Conviction Integrity Unit announced two months ago that 55-year-old Walter Augrod was likely innocent of the 1988 murder of four-year-old Barbara Jean Horn, a crime for which Augrod was convicted and sentenced to die in 1996. Ogrod's attorneys are now racing to get his conviction overturned and his release secured as COVID-19 rages through America's jail and prisons. Assistant District Attorney Patricia Cummings and the CIU released a stipulation of facts on February 28th detailing how investigators coerced a statement from Ogrod, used unreliable jailhouse informants, and suppressed evidence that would have vindicated him. Ogrod was wrongfully imprisoned for nearly three decades on death row 
and all agree his incarceration constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, Cummings concluded in the statement. Having concluded that Agra is likely innocent, the Commonwealth urges this court to vacate his convictions and sentence. Yet more than a month after Cummings' office asked the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas to vacate his conviction and set Agra free, he remains behind bars. Worse still, his lawyer says Ogrod is now showing symptoms of COVID-19 infection. If his conviction is not overturned immediately, Ogrod may die in prison for a crime everyone acknowledges he did not commit. Now, Zuri Davis is the writer of this. She does a fabulous job recounting the details of the case, including the first trial where the jury actually returned a verdict of not guilty. But the judge declared a mistrial because one of the jurors protested in open court after the verdict was announced. Uh, she also talks about DNA testing, the fact that DNA basically exonerates this guy, uh, shows that it was someone else who did it. And story picks up, quote, Agrod became very sick in the middle of March. He had a high fever and was displaying respiratory conditions consistent with the novel coronavirus. Lacking access to medical resources, his counsel filed an emergency medical motion on March 18th through the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas, asking for his transportation to an outside hospital for testing and treatment. Citing the CIU's findings that Ogrod was likely innocent, Judge Leon Tucker ordered his transfer to an outside hospital until he was no longer at risk for transfer. The Pennsylvania Department of Corrections did not comply with the order. That's a very polite way of saying they basically told the judge to go fuck himself. And then three days later, Tucker vacated the order entirely after determining that his court lacked jurisdiction. So I checked. He's still in there as of April 11th. The guy has not moved. He's probably dying of coronavirus for a crime he didn't commit, and he's still stuck in jail. Uh, so that is it for the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery. Every once in a while, we cover stuff in foreign countries. In this case, we have the First Rule of Fisk United Kingdom edition in Manchester. From that story, it says, quote, Police have apologized after a man was arrested for apparently helping a vulnerable family member during stay-at-home restrictions. The unidentified man had been in Fallowfield, Manchester on Friday afternoon when he was filmed being handcuffed by a police officer. The man claimed he had been doing errands for a vulnerable family member, saying he had, subquote, come to drop some stuff off. When officers are asked why the man is being handcuffed, one of them says he was breaking COVID guidelines, referring to restrictions brought in last month to limit the spread of COVID-19. A female neighbor approaches and said there must be, subquote, more pressing situations to be dealing with. But the officer replies, subquote, you'll be next. The officer also threatens to spray the man, who asks a number of times to have the handcuffs adjusted because he's in pain. A spokesman for Greater Manchester Police said the man was later, and this is a, a word, de-arrested and given a fixed penalty notice. I don't practice UK law. I don't know what the fuck a de-arrest is or what a fixed penalty notice is. Um, but again, all this is on video and it's amazing how when it comes to misapplying police force to enforce regulations, it's pure coincidence that uh, black people happen to bear the brunt of it. Uh, so folks, that is it for this podcast. I know it's rather brief. We just didn't have that many stories this week, um, but feel free to continue sending them to me as you get them. Uh, you're not going to get this until after Easter, but for those of you who celebrate, since it is Easter, uh, happy Easter. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. Please stay home, wash your hands, stay safe, be blessed, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>